John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry number 1177.AM0521, certificate number 18585, Smellovision. You'll be able to watch Apocalypse Now and actually smell the napalm in the morning. And uh, it'll add a whole new dimension to the eating baked beans around the campfire scene in Blazing Saddles. In the future, we'll be picking our political leaders, at least partially based on their smell. It's inevitable. It's a beautiful day here. We have no idea how long our civilization will last. People are going about their business, mm. unaware of possibly impending doom. Right. And we're talking to the future, hypothetical listeners, about one of the most important advancements of the last century, smellovision. I imagine that smellovision, although... It hasn't. It didn't really take hold initially. It could end up being one of those technologies that, hundreds of years from now, everyone's consuming all media with a smell aspect. Maybe people are smelling this recording right now. They're not even listening to it. Each each word we speak has been turned into some kind of uh, olfactory stimulus that they're inhaling. Do you think that that's a thing you could retroactively do? Is it like colorizing media, except <laughs> right. you smellerize it? Well, there actually have been cases of smellerizing media, but in this case, you'd be, I think, replacing the whole thing with smells. Oh, right. It would be like, instead of watching Wizard of Oz with somebody releasing smells of uh, apples or whatever, um, mm -hmm. you'd get, only get the series of smells that, that somehow convey the same plot and nuance as the Wizard of Oz at every second. Right. So it would be, it'd be, it'd be like if futurelings were actually like giant moles. Yeah. If, if their most developed sense was smell, which may happen. Right. Smell has many evolutionary advantages. Absolutely. Finding food, hunting, mate selection, avoiding predators. So, so it's all... almost, it's almost a certainty that the creatures <laughs> we're talking to have only the sense of smell and they are inhaling these words right now. <laughs> Well, I hope that this show smells as good as it tastes. There will have to be smell translators that'll have to go back. You know, like like today you would translate something into French or Japanese or Uzbek. Right. So you have to have specialists, olfactory specialists who can listen to any medium, a, a painting or a classical music, a, watch a play and find the appropriate smells. Right. Type it out on the, on the smell writers. <laughs> <laughs> on my turd processor. <laughs> I guess it probably wouldn't be. So... Smell-O-Vision then. Not Smell-O-Vision, but Smell-O-Vision. It was, it was styled Smell-O-Vision, but it was clearly a pun on television. So I don't know if we're wrong to pronounce it to rhyme with television, like Smell-O-Vision. Smell-O-Vision. Are we going to say Smell-O-Vision the whole time? Well, like... That, I, I do say Jack-O-Lantern. But that, that hyphen O in the middle, uh -huh. like Centromatic, or, you know, there were a lot of O-Matics and O-Visions. Yeah, it was the vowel of the future. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but is it is it like a is it a tip of the hat to to uh, to the Irish or is it, is it what like what is the significance? It's not, it's not the smell of vision, right? <laughs> well, uh, no, smell of, smell of the vision oh, to you today. Smell of vision. It's a, a smell of the vision to you. So, what is the significance? How did that? How did that become the way that we describe something? Uh, how did? How was that the way? That people in the 40s and 50s described some new technology. Well, if you future. think if you think about it, if you replace it with other vowels, it does seem less less futuristic. You don't want right. smell vision, smelly vision, smell a vision. 
Like no. smell O vision and also the big visual O in the middle. It's like a black hole sucking in both ends of the word with its Im- immense gravity. It's a good vowel. Yeah, I, but but uh, but I'm wondering specifically like mix mix mixotrons and uh, and are there really that many examples? I think well, I mean I, it's ringing a bell now in my head. Uh, I mean there are probably a lot of Greek roots that ended with O, right? Like words that start with automatic or panorama right panovision except it's panovision with an a (laughs) those guys missed a trick but i think it is you're right automatic is the is the word of the future of 1930 right because you go get your food from the automat right everything is sandwich comes out of a little cubby hole everything is going to be automatic and so then it's going to be smellomatic or or, or waxomatic, right? And there were a lot of oramas too, like from from panorama, you know, those yeah. sensorama, sensorama. I think, yeah, I, I I'm gonna go with that. It, it it was a Greek ending that ended up because auto and pano were words of the future, right? It became and the future aspect was very important here because uh, in the 1950s, in particular, movie makers and studios and exhibitors were terrified that they were in a dying industry. Movie makers in the 50s thought that, yeah, we oh, think, because television was supplanting them. Right. People are just going to stay home and watch, you know, something, you know. Lucille dumb. Ball. Yeah, Ed Sullivan or something. Because I don't think, we're, I think we would be amazed at how often people used to go to the movies in the golden age of Hollywood. People would go, like the average American went to like. At least once a week. Yeah, you'd go like the movies, three movies a week, you right. know, or something. You know, and that's just not a thing anymore. Like, uh, I feel like at the moment we record this, future listeners, futurelings, mm-hmm. future, futurama, uh-huh. futuramas, uh, <laughs> futuramatics. <laughs> I think fewer than ten percent of Americans go to the movies more than once a month. Really? Is that a statistic you're just making up? No, I I recently read this, mm-hmm. uh, and it's for the same reason. Except now, in addition to television, there's a ton of streaming video sources, and yet somehow the film industry is still, I mean, maybe not as rich as it once was, but obviously Hollywood still putters along. Yeah, there's, but there's a sense of decline, I yeah. think. Worst worst summer, this this last movie summer was the worst in a, a couple decades, I think. But we've had that in Hollywood several times over the years, right? And then there's a resurgence, some new, some new young gun directors start putting out hip new films, uh, like, uh, you know, Mumblecore or... Uh, I thought the, you were going to say like the seventies. I thought you were going to say Serpica or something. That's what but I meant. No, no. You want the Duplass brothers uh, mumbling about bad sexual escapades. Yes. Mumblecore is going to save cinema. So they were worried about the decline of film and they needed some, or the, the decline of movie going and they needed some gimmick to, to entice people back. Yeah. Into what, the what can we do that that little box in your, and the funny thing is television sucked. You know, it was a tiny little screen. It, uh, there were, you know, three channels, maybe two of which probably came in to your house. I mean, we don't realize how good we have it. Um, but theater exhibitors were terrified because they correctly saw that, you know, I mean, we're finally seeing the fruits of it now. This could replace all movie watching. You could just have it in your house. Right. Like it's in, it's in Fahrenheit 451, you know, a vision of the future from around the same time. People all have a big, a full wall of their house is a TV screen and they just stay there watching soaps all day. And that's finally coming true. You know, people are starting to have, you know, big flat screen TVs on the walls of their homes. Sure. For the first one, time. one of the two of us has a, has a giant home theater. <laughs> and one is a Luddite <laughs> still watching Jackie Gleason on a little tiny box. You know, the that other, looks like a microwave. <laughs> the other day I actually was watching uh, rich little appearances on the, on the Carson show uh, to see. <laughs> that's validating everything your audience thinks they know about you. To see, to see how good his uh, impression of Ehrlichman was during the <laughs> Watergate trial. It was pretty good. This is pretty far afield, but I was, uh, there was a, a TV movie based on the Leno Letterman late night spat in the 90s. Do you remember this movie? A, uh, a TV movie starring like actors as Yeah, the, like oh. it starred that um, John Michael Higgins from all those Christopher Guest movies playing Letterman uh-huh. and Daniel, TV actor Daniel Roebuck playing Leno in a fake chin. And I don't know if you remember this, but for this movie, they got Rich Little to play Carson. Gee, gee, what a fast-paced afternoon. <laughs> you, you folks must be just short of a coma. You know, Jay Leno, who is now the guest host on our show, is driving me nuts backstage. How are you feeling? Your thyroid okay? You know, I like Jay, and he is very concerned about my health. 
In fact, he suggested I take a run through Central Park about midnight tonight. Wow. And of course, he looks nothing like Carson. It's just Rich Little with, uh, you know, high school gray in his hair. Um, but he's, he's doing a very good Carson impression, but looks nothing like him. What's, what was hilarious about watching Rich Little on Carson was he, I mean, the audience insisted that he get up and do two minutes of Carson in front of Carson. And I, mean, I think he did it every time he appeared on the show. You know, he couldn't resist because his Carson's pretty good. But it is. You, but you forget that Johnny Carson was also famous for his impressions. And so you can see Johnny sitting behind the desk, like his fingers just kind of digging into the desk, wanting to get up and, you know, and challenge Rich Little <laughs> to like, you know, he also wants to do his Ed Sullivan and Rich Little kind of is doing his Ed Sullivan and Johnny's got an Ed Sullivan, I have an Ed Sullivan. that he wants to do too. And, uh, or Jimmy Stewart, like they both have, they both have a Jimmy Stewart. really good Jimmy Stewart's. Um, and, but Carson also realizes he's a little bit outmatched and also he's a good host. He's not right. He's there to make the guests look good. Carson should have done rich little doing Carson. Like that would be a like third order impression. Right. You see that a lot with, uh, who are the two aging actors that are most imitated now? Would you, would you say? Uh, in our like aging but living, yeah, aging but living. People do, but you know a lot because they can do the yelling, the thing. shouting. But I would say it was Michael Caine. Oh yeah, yeah. Everybody has a Michael Caine. Michael Caine, and he actually gets up and does his impression of people doing an impression of him. I've seen that because there's a whole movie franchise now based around two British people doing Michael Caine impressions, which <laughs> blows my mind. I don't right. know why this is a thing, <laughs> but yes, let's all go watch Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan. Alternate Michael Caine impressions <laughs> for 90 minutes. And the other one is Christopher Walken. Everybody's got a Christopher Walken impression. So it's all the easy impressions. That's what we see. Because with Christopher Walken, you just... <laughs> you have to put pauses in at opportune spaces. Yeah, but his accent is actually really strange. It never... It what, doesn't, what is it? It doesn't... It, he's from... He's, he's from, from New York, Brooklyn. right? Yeah. yeah. It doesn't... But it sounds like he's from Denmark. I it, mean, I always thought he was a foreign actor. Maybe he was captured by aliens from Brooklyn at a young age hmm. and had to learn Brooklynese like from olfactory videos or something. <laughs> okay, so Smell-O-Vision, did it work? What was the technology exactly? The technology is actually not that different than something that had gone back centuries. Like in Elizabethan theater, sometimes they would have sensors of incense on the stage so the audience could get the, the ritual vibe of what was going on in the play and uh, early movie exhibitors tried some of the same things. You know, uh, there's in 1916, there's a theater showing uh, a little newsreel about the Rose parade. So they put a uh, uh, Rose oil in front of a heating element or in front of a fan and, and blast it out into the theater. And it smells like roses for a second. And would that, would that increase your enjoyment of a, of a newsreel about the Rose parade? This is the crucial question of right. smell vision Does anyone want this? Like, who was asking for this? Like, if you're a bored projectionist, I can see why you might say. Or if you're a movie exhibitor worried that, uh, you know, you got to do something that Ed Sullivan can't do, you know, maybe then you're desperately grabbing for ideas like Smell-O-Vision. Right. But where audience is like, candles. I hate, I hate that I can see uh, Boomtown starring Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy, but Clark Gable does not smell like tobacco nor Spencer Tracy like pine, mm. which was a gimmick that a Detroit theater tried in 1943. They would play a different scent with each actor. So you would associate that actor with the smell that was wafting through the theater. They had their signature smell like a th like some theme music. Yeah, exactly. It's the equivalent of soundtrack music, except, oh, I can smell tobacco. Clark Gable must be coming into the movie. But it would seem to me that if you broadcast the smell of tobacco into a giant room, and then on the heels of that, broadcast the smell of pine, then what you really have is the smell of tobacco and pine you in get, the room all the time. You get pine backo. Pine backo. This is one of the crucial technological hurdles to be jumped with Smell-O-Vision, John. Uh, mm. It's called olfactory fatigue. I have that so much. That, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not when I'm in the room, I hope. <laughs> Just the idea, you know, two problems. One, you smell something too long and it goes away. You get anosmic to it. Uh -huh. Osma being the Greek root for smell, as we shall see. Mm. Um, osmium, the element, means stinky metal, I guess. It had a stinky oxide. Uh, and the other problem is, yeah, that smells compound. How do you, how do you get rid of one smell and get the new one in? Um, so it's not as easy as just, you know, waving perfume, waving lilac oil over a room. There actually was a Swiss inventor, a guy named Hans Laube, whose 
he must have been some kind of con man because in every description of the story, he has a different title. He's he's an advertising executive. He's a professor. He's a electrical engineer. He's an osmologist, like, like a, boat captain, a thing that doesn't exist. So clearly, this guy's some kind of con man or uh, unemployed jack of all trades, right? Um, and he invented a technology at the 1943 World's Fair. He unveiled a new, yet another technological advancement at a World's Fair. Mm -hmm. He unveiled um, a system to produce smells for an auditorium. Boy, this is this is a lesser world's fair than than the one where powered flight was unveiled cars and planes already <laughs> having been invented uh the new yorkers of 1943 were wowed by uh movies of flowers that smelled like a flower uh it was a pretty simple device it was mechanical of course it was just a belt full of perfume bulbs like on a metal reel that were cued to signals on the film. So, you know, in the same way that the side of a film would have a soundtrack so that you could sync up the sound to the film, there would also be other kinds of uh, symbols that could be read by the smellinator. Uh-huh. So as- Was it called the smellinator or are you- <laughs> No, just... <laughs> I'm just making that up. It would be the smellinator. <laughs> so when you reach the appropriate part of the movie, you know, a, a character walks through a vineyard or whatever, click, the reel would advance once, a little needle-like thing would puncture the bulb of grape scented smell, which would get squeezed into a, a system of ducts. So it actually had to. <laughs> that is the word duct here is that, I don't know. It really repulsed me briefly because it's an like an anatomical duct. Well, yeah, that's where you don't want uh, a smell excreted is from a duct. <laughs> it goes into a, like this equivalent of a heating or air conditioning duct. Like it's imagine those little pipes that they send tubes uh, of, memos uh -huh, through little in, pneumatic, in old timey uh, office buildings. Uh, uh, I wish we still had those, man. Those they, were the days. They still have them at banks. They do. If you're in the Midwest, if, at least. If you're driving through a bank because you're a time traveler. Yeah. Yeah. You could still put your little. So I worked in an slip. office that still had pneumatic tube memo delivery systems. No. Yeah. Did, did it still work? It still worked and we still used it. Uh, it was a brokerage. I worked at the Piper Jaffray stock brokerage in the in the early nineties and we still would put things in little tubes and send them up the tube. So in the early nineties, John, I had email. Can you explain to me why you guys were putting things in little <clears> tubes? How early in the nineties did you have email? 92, fall of 92. Wow. Early adopter. Well, I was like, you know, college campuses had them. I see. You know, so often, you know, that was sort of the beginning of it. Freshmen getting issued an email address and you'd say, what's an email address? Right. Dot edu. But why, yeah, exactly. But why were the, why were these people still doing this instead of, well, you know, I still sat at a typewriter, a manual typewriter, and typed out checks to the big depositors, like... In the early 90s? Ding. Yeah. Did you have a single candle like Bob Cratchit? I, I sat at a desk with a visor and a, and a, and a, a garter on a my green sleeve. green visor. <laughs> yeah. And then typed this stuff out. So it was still... There were two floors of that office building, which was the the IBM building in downtown Seattle, which was the prototype designed by the same architect as the World Trade Center and a prototype of it. It used the same, you can go down and see it now. It's still it's the there. Same. I can picture it. it's got the sort of arch like. Yeah. And it's the same construction style as, as what ended up being the World Trade Center in, in New York. And two floors of that building were just cardboard boxes full of paper. They, they were just the uh, just the archive, and you would go up, and the the rooms were dimly lit. You know, big just the whole floor of the building. You'd walk on, and the kind of flickering neon or flickering uh, fluorescent light. Was it all one big room like Jack Lemon in the apartment? Everybody had a little Terry Gilliam station. Yeah, and you'd kind of walk away. through with the, with your cart, and you'd go find the the cardboard legal box that had you know the right code written on the side, and find the paperwork. I guess to our listeners, pneumatic tubes and email probably sound equally out of date. Right. So they're not, they're not a shock. <clears throat> no, I they're, am. they're smelling all their communications with their <laughs> friends and business uh, compatriots. That's but, right. You don't even have to sign your emails because you will just know that whoever smelt it probably dealt it. <laughs> how, uh, how many times in our lives have we been pushed the idea that we were on the cusp of paperless offices? I mean, I remember hearing about paperless offices at the uh, dawn of the fax machine, right? The fax machine was going to do away with envelopes and triplicate. I mean, it was... The fax machine still produced paper. It just produced that weird 
waxy paper that ballpoint pens couldn't write on. But it, produ- it, it I remember fax machines being touted as a way that we were going to reduce paper in offices somehow. I mean, I, that was the first pitch was that it was it was going to enable us to be free from the mail somehow. I, I totally understand that now that you're describing a full, you know, two full floors of an office building that are stacks of papers. You can see why a lot of people were sitting around thinking this is not the right way to do things. Um, I mean, just in terms of rent alone. I mean, they were renting that space, sure, obviously. Expensive, <laughs> expensive office space uh, in a skyscraper. And it's just full of stacks of paper. But I have yet to see a paperless office. I mean, I, I just wrote a guy a check today and had a duplicate copy for my own files. Did you put it through one of those things that goes ka-chunk, ka-chunk? <laughs> I don't even know what those are called. The cardonator. The cardonators. <laughs> well, the human love for paper is, uh, it turns out, very hard to extinguish. You know, everybody assumed books were a nightmare that we would replace with our lightweight tablets. You know, as soon as a good digital book existed, nobody would read a book anymore. And it turns out that's not true. In our era, at least, bookstores are still doing fine because even many young people don't switch over. Is that true? Yes. Like, it's not a generation gap where all the young people are reading ebooks and all the old people like paper books. There appear to be people that will put up with digital books and a huge half of the culture that just will not. Wow. That does not want to switch over. I can't imagine enjoying a digital book, but I do find that a large portion of what used to be my book reading time is now just stare at phone time. That's true. I mean, that's, that's the danger to books, I think. But, is that you're just not reading right. book length things at all. We're all getting too dumb, basically. Well, it's funny because I worked in a magazine stand for many years. In the evening after you'd leave the bank, you'd in the, wander down to the newsstand. After I realized I was not suited to work at banks, there was a while where I thought that working at a bank was going to be my ticket to respectability. Sell out. Because during the night, I was like a street prowler in and out of all the dark corners of American life. But during the day, I would button it up and go to my my bank job. I still wore combat boots under my khakis, but... Are you some Patrick Bateman figure in the story? At, like, at the time... Who, who are you murdering? <laughs> at the time. After you leave the office. Pretty close. But then I realized that I, I couldn't live this double life and I needed to get... I needed to bring my life back together into a single life. Quit working at banks and I started working at a magazine shop, which was exact. It acquitted perfectly with how I was living. Right, I could work four days a week, five hours a day, sit and sell cigarettes and magazines to people, and kind of be the like the sidewalk philosopher that I was meant to be. Sit up there and talk about the news of the day. Back when people would go to the newsstand, perfect to get the news. But I got in the habit of reading newspapers and magazines, and it's a a hard habit to break when you start digesting information in these bite-sized art in in article form rather than in book form and i never was really able to get wholly back into the novel or the long form book after spending like years and years just reading so many magazines i mean you know i'd get full i'd get full of words but all from these five page articles rather than it's, it's funny because every generation assumes the new thing is going to ruin civilization. I mean, it's easy to find screeds about how, you know, radio is, is the death of uh, the Western intellect or, you know, whatever, um, and maybe further back still. So you actually predated the, uh, the screens probably. Like you, you were afraid that magazines were going to ruin your brain. I actually did feel like magazines had ruined my brain. And, and so reading the phone for me was an easy transition because I had already, I'd already gotten into the mode of being able to read an entire, to follow an entire story in the course of an hour, an hour investment of time rather than a week. Or My grandmother was an elementary school teacher and she went to her grave convinced that Sesame Street had ruined America because children <laughs> used to be able to learn in the lengths of a school lesson, you know, uh, an hour or two. And Sesame Street had taught them that there would be something new every 90 seconds. And she just thought that whatever the attention span center of the brain had been ruined and we were never going to get that back. It's so hilarious because if you watch Sesame Street episodes from the late 60s, early 70s, they they have the same pacing as Deer Hunter. There are <laughs> huge, long wedding scenes, giant sections where nothing happens. People are so patient talking really, really slowly. Yeah, it's like a 13-hour Jacques Rivette movie. <laughs> I, I I watched an old Sesame Street the other day with my kids where Stevie Wonder comes out and just sings Superstition 
like in total, the long album version of it for like six or seven minutes yeah. with some long organ jam in the middle on some, on some Hammond organ. And that's the thing. There's no lesson being taught. Right. The lyrics are not changed to be about um, opposites or hot and cold or right. near and far. Are Muppets dancing with him or I, does he just play the song? I think it may be Muppet free. Like there might be a few wow. of those multiracial Sesame Street street kids on the stoop enjoying. Yeah. But like that's the whole segment. And then, you know, after eight minutes of that, well, we're out. <laughs> well, those early 70s Sesame Streets, there are, yeah, whole montages of just kids playing in fire hydrants on hot summer days. Yeah, and I think it's it was more revolutionary than we think because it's urban kids right. playing on urban streets. It was. It was it's like, w- w- how can this be on TV? Those are Puerto Rican kids, you yeah. know, like. Being, like a, being a kid in the West, in the Northwest in particular, watching those scenes of New York City kids, it really uh, gave me this sense of a, of another world. And it was. That's probably the the single thing that led to the death of rural America, actually, was kids, a generation of kids finally being able to watch their peers in a big city and being like, I'm done. I'm not going to live in Wairika, (laughs) California anymore. Like I'm moving somewhere with fire hydrants. I definitely went looking for America when I left. When I left Alaska, I had this sense that the United States was this uh, foreign land. Because also in between here and Puerto Rican kids playing in open fire hydrants was all that John Cougar America where people with cowboy boots were riding in hay trailers on their way to the football game. And I wanted to, you know, I thought that was just as much, I mean, it it might as well have been Zimbabwe for all I knew about it from Alaska. But would you have wanted to smell hay while looking at those images or listening to those songs? I was surprised at how strong the smell of hay was was when I finally started smelling hay. That's the crucial question of smell-o-vision, right. is how badly do you need that smell? Let's, uh, let's get back to smell-o-vision after this break. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout so speaking for myself i do not when watching a film desire extra smell we live in an age when people are eating nachos next to us in some of these high-end theaters, and I find it annoying, actually. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I understand the smell of popcorn in a theater. And we're, let's be honest, we're just conditioned to that. There's nothing right. inherent about the smell of artificial butter that thinks, ah, it makes you think this should go with a movie. No, it's true. It's but, just that we were raised with that. But I feel, th- I mean... Most, most theater foods are odorless, you know? A milk dud smells like nothing. But pe- so people have been predicting the end of radio since the 40s. But here we are doing a broadcast that's strictly audio. There's no attendant. I mean, I guess probably if you go on the web or if futurelings go on whatever their... If they extend their feelers into some kind of digital ether. Right, or, or use, their, use their noses to, to search for other information about us. There, you, there is some additional info, but for the most part, we are still broadcasting in the same way that Orson Welles did back in the 30s. He probably didn't go off the subject quite so much. Who knows? Unless he'd had a, <laughs> unless he'd had a few too many wine coolers. No, that was back before uh, radio was accessible to everyone who just wanted to have the ability to conversate. You actually had, had to have some kind of uh, polish back in those days. But, uh, well, I'd say that you and I were extraordinarily polished given the uh, standards of our day. <laughs> but so, I, uh, so people actually, in spite of the fact that you can now watch in virtual reality uh, things happening in three dimensions, there's still a, a real place for communication that only takes up one of the senses. Right. You can listen to a podcast and not need to also smell it. 
So I can't think of a reason I would want to, I mean, a, a movie is pretty all encompassing without also uh, sure. shaking my chair and. Which and, was a real thing sent yeah. around for earthquake. And I, I, William Castle had a thing where a movie called the a horror movie called the tingler, where your, your seat would actually shock you. You'd get a low electric charge during the scary parts. So it all seems just, it all seems just like a, like a novelty, but did smell a vision succeed? What were the, uh, the people of the day? What was their take on it? Spoilers. Uh, smell a vision did not succeed. Oh. Not every subsequent movie has been in smell a vision <laughs> and you just didn't notice. Um, oh. Smell to me is a particular problem because it's very visceral. Yeah. You know, it's the only sense where, well, I guess taste as well, but you know, when you look at a painting or you look at a, uh, look out your window and you see a bird, little bird particles are not entering your eye. Thank goodness. I know when you hear a lawnmower, you know, little bits of grass are not flying into your ear unless you're right next to it. Whereas everything you're smelling, you're smelling it because tiny little pieces of that are in your head. Right. You know, going into your actual face. If you smell dog droppings, it's because little tiny molecules of the stuff in dog droppings are working their way into your orifices. That's awful. It's not a pleasant thought. No. And yet Mike Todd became convinced that that's what America wanted. Mike Todd Jr. was a movie producer. His dad had been the founder of Cinerama. Oh. So a, a movie. Cinorama. <laughs> In fact, no. <laughs> I think Cinorama with an S is some kind of porn thing. Cinerama. And his dad had produced Around the World in 80 Days, a Best Picture Oscar winner, which is now pretty much unwatchable. But his dad was a, a big, uh, you know, gimmick-minded exhibitor who died too young in a plane crash. Oh, he was also um, one of the many husbands of Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, really? So Mike Todd Jr.'s stepmother was younger than him. Wow. It was Elizabeth Taylor. I guess going off the subject for a second. Elizabeth Taylor, the violet-eyed, double-eyelashed siren of the day. Of the day, but not anymore, right? Like, for the 60s, 70s, 80s, there was not a bigger movie star in the world. Even when she stopped making movies, you'd see her in the every supermarket line tabloid yeah um like i grew up in a world where elizabeth taylor was the biggest celebrity and a great actress you know two-time academy award winner and yet is there any nostalgia for elizabeth taylor today is can you think of another performer of that stature who has left less of a mark on the world i think that that maybe happens to them all right if you think about a lot of the stars of our day that were legendary stars i mean how many i guess clark gable you still would talk to a teenager and or maybe not a teenager, but someone in their 20s, and they would sort of have a vague sense of who Clark Gable was, but not anywhere close to how big a star Clark Gable seemed to us, like an eternal star. But, um, you know, Elizabeth Taylor had contemporaries like James Dean and Marilyn Monroe and Audrey Hepburn, people who still retain, you know, some sense that they were yeah. you know, the faces of the 20th century. But when's the last time anybody thought about Elizabeth Taylor? Well, but the thing about Marilyn Monroe is that we never watched her decline. I think you may be right. And watching Elizabeth Taylor decline was pretty hard because Elizabeth Taylor during Cat on a Hot Tin Roof era was so not just beautiful, but elegant. And uh, she seemed to have... She had to, this very earthy physical quality. She did, but but supernatural almost. Why don't you put on your nice silk pajamas, honey, and come on down to the party? There's a lovely cool breeze. Give me my crutch, Maggie. Lean on me, baby. Mm, you've got a nice smell about you. And by the 80s, when she married that guy that was like the pool cleaner that Her worked. seventh husband? Yeah. That Larry worked, Fortensky? Larry Fortensky that sort of like she met him because he was he was out like putting air in the tires of, of the double wide where she was living at the time. He was just some contractor or something, right? Yeah. Uh, it just, he had a mullet and was and just seemed like. Um, and keep in mind that she had famously married senators and uh, hotel heirs and right, movie stars. Richard Burton two Richard times. Richard Burton twice. And I think that continued her appeal to the... Tabloids. But she had transitioned to tabloid famous rather than, you know, uh, Life Magazine famous. She committed the ultimate sin of getting crow's feet and getting some weight and, and still showing up on talk shows to hawk perfume and uh, costume jewelry. Those weren't sins in, uh, she actually rode that pretty well because that was the era of the PTL club and um, Dallas where 
women with a lot of makeup on and their hair elaborately coiffed who were also middle class or lower middle class. I mean, they were really sort of a prominent cultural meme. Sure. All those, all those Dallas type shows had some, they couldn't get Elizabeth Taylor, but they had some Elizabeth Taylor light, right? Some over the hill matriarch from, from the golden age of Hollywood. They'd have Jane Wyman or Barbara Stanwyck or somebody. So she didn't just fade into irrelevance. She actually found and made a new kind of place for herself. But she did not leave a beautiful corpse. Well, which would have been, which would have been the, the, you know, that's what's required, I guess, in our youth culture. Well, and I think, you know, like weirdly, it might also be a product of the mainstreaming of gay life because people like Elizabeth Taylor were gay icons during an era when gay culture was separate from mainstream culture and had its own talismanic figureheads and people, you know, like if you were living a kind of closeted life, you could express your culture by this love of Elizabeth Taylor, who was almost a Liberace. She almost had a Liberace level of flash and camp. Right. And I guess that's what it is. It's, it's the death of camp. It's true. We do not have as many campy mainstream celebrities. Yeah. And that, and and, we have thousands of them on reality TV, but they know their place. And she was already like Elizabeth Taylor would have already been irrelevant except she was made hip again by the sort of gay culture's embrace of her ludicrousness but that is kind of gone from our culture and it used to power so much appreciation the ironic appreciation of show tunes that in the depth of it was no longer ironic because it was so intense the love of camp culture it's also possible that she never made one great movie like Judy Garland camp icon is still a household name for pretty much one reason. If you're straight, the wizard of Oz. Right. And Elizabeth Taylor did not have a black beauty the wizard of Oz national velvet or national velvet. Right. Right. But nobody she watches had her horse movie velvet. when she was a kid. I mean, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf has aged very well, but it's not like it's uh, not a star vehicle. Nobody has posters on their dorm room wall of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. And I think at the time she didn't really go the full Marilyn Monroe bathing beauty. She's not like, you don't have posters of her. It's true. She was uh, never a, a bombshell. And probably because she was a serious, a serious actress. Actor, you know, she's right? British American. She was not just discovered chewing gum at a, as a car hop or something. You know, she has double eyelashes, right? Yeah. She's, she's also a, a mutant. Yeah. She's, she's a, she's the two layers of eyelash and violet eyes. Such a, such a different like chromosomally person. made to be a movie star. Yeah. I don't know if we have that anymore either. Uh, movie stars with weird, uh, physical abnormalities that make them super cinematic. Hmm. Well, certainly if you had double eyelashes now, I think it would be on the top line of your bio, your IMDB bio. I would be wasted on podcasting <laughs> if I had violet eyes and double eyelashes. Neither of us have eyebrows at all. We are both so lightly colored. And you wear glasses, which is a good move. It sort of covers your lack of, uh, well, it's like I'm a, cursed by my perfect, perfect yeah. 2010 vision. I'm very surprised you didn't become a fighter pilot. It seems like you could have been a fighter pilot if you'd tried. Except for everything else about my personality. Yeah. I have the eyesight and no other characteristics of a hotshot <laughs> fighter pilot. <laughs> I have his eyes. So Mike Todd's stepmother was Elizabeth Taylor. Right. Um, Mike but- Todd himself. Took over Cinerama, but like everybody else, he's afraid that mo- the movies are dying. And Cinerama itself is a gimmick to try to, you know, we're big, a big rectangle. Your TV is not a big rectangle. Right. He did not foresee a day like ours when all- our TVs are big rectangles. Spoilers. Although watching a movie in Cinerama is truly an amazing experience. The few theaters left in the country that, that play Cinerama films in actual Cinerama. I think it might only be three. I think it might just be Seattle, Dayton, and LA. It might have the only remaining You're kidding. Cinerama screens. And one of the three is Dayton, Ohio? It's, it's weird, some weird, possibly World's Fair related uh, historical accident, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's Wright Brothers related. Uh-huh. I don't know. But we uh-huh. have one here in Seattle. We're yes, very we proud. we do. And we get to see uh, Lawrence of Arabia periodically when Paul Allen trots it out. So Mike Todd wants uh, a gimmick. Uh, along the lines of electroshock or whatever. And he hooks up with Hans Laba, the guy from the World's Fair, and decides that movies that smell are the way to go. 
And this must have been something in the cultural zeitgeist at the time because it becomes an arms race, as so often happens in the movies, weirdly, between him and a competing property called Aroma Rama. No. Which has a better name, probably. Smell of Vision and Aroma Rama are racing to come out at the same time in 1959. No. Aroma Rama. Isn't that great? <laughs> but they are, they are not commissioning a movie. They don't have Mike Todd's connections. They're just adding smells to a, a documentary about China called Behind the Great Wall. That's going to be Aroma Rama's big splash. Mm-mm. But Mike Todd actually commissions a big time Hollywood Hitchcockian light kind of a comedy action piece called Scent of Mystery where smell will be key to the lighthearted uh, <laughs> travel, you know, global cosmopolitan shenanigans. So it, so it factors into the plot. Like, is it, uh, is there foreshadowing? Like you smell the, the smell of pines and that yes. g- gives you a clue. Yes. Uh, there are some times where the, there are cases in the movie, which I've seen, although not in smell vision after smell vision failed, it was re, um, purposed for Cinerama with the name, with the non olfactory name holiday in Spain. And you can see it on Blu-ray, which uh, future listeners was a technology that Short-lived introduced technology. and almost immediately was ended by the doom of civilization some, shortly after its debut. Some strange contemporary people who have home theaters also have Blu-ray disc players. Uh, it's like a <laughs> compact disc, but the laser is blue instead of red, which is much, much better. Right. Very gratifying. And uh, I've seen it. It's a fun little curio. It's very odd now because you'll see close-ups of somebody taking, you know, somebody handing a bouquet of yellow roses to somebody in close-up <laughs> or like bread comes out of the oven and the camera stays there for eight seconds or whatever. <laughs> like even though the original um, smell-o-vision print of this movie is lost, you could, there's some remaining relics of clearly this was when people were supposed to smell something. Right, people throwing a ball directly at the, <laughs> at yeah. the screen. Even today you go to a movie, like Hollywood is still trying this with 3D. Like, you can't have 3D at home, really. So come see Batman versus Superman in 3D. And I hate it. So I'll go to the 2D screening. But there'll always be some roller coaster type scene where you realize, oh, this is for the people who paid six bucks for the glasses. Yeah, right. What One time per film, there's actually a moment where someone's floating in zero gravity and some water gets released and little right. bubbles are floating and you're like, oh, that's beautiful. A, but... a thimble just came very close to the lens. <laughs> but the rest of the time you're spending sort of adjusting your 3D glasses, or at least I am, over the top of my regular glasses. It's very annoying. And it's too dark. I don't think enough people realize how much of the light of the projection gets lost because you're only seeing half of it with each eye. Each eye is only seeing light polarized in one direction. So it makes the image, you know, twice as dim in each eye as right. it should be, which to me is a deal killer. Anyway. Um, so was there only one film ever made specifically for Smell-O-Vision? Scent of Mystery, directed by Jack Cardiff, a British cinematographer, best known, great, great color, Technicolor cinematographer. He shot African Queen. He shot all the beautiful British color movies for Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, like uh, the red, I don't know if you've seen any of these, the red shoes. Black Narcissist. Oh, yeah. Black um, Narcissist, one of my all-time favorites. Beautiful films that are not really lush color movies that are not seen much today. But this is one of the few movies he directed. The star, oddly, is Denholm Elliott, British character actor, probably best remembered today as sort of the fuddy-duddy, absent-minded toff in a lot of movies. Like he's Indiana Jones's stupid British sidekick in two of those movies. Really? Yeah, he's uh, Marcus Brody. Care to wet your whistle, Marcus? I'd rather spit in your face. But as I haven't got any spit. Well, Marcus, we're on the brink of the recovery of the greatest artifact in the history of mankind. You're meddling with powers you cannot possibly comprehend. He's the star of, of yeah. Scent of Mystery? Not a leading man that you would imagine. <laughs> but he plays this sort of carefree British aristocrat, you know, driving through Spain having adventures uh-huh. uh, in, in his younger days. Oh, I, I don't know if I, I've never even seen this guy young, actually. And Peter Laurie is his sort of cab driver sidekick. Oh, no kidding. So there actually is... Um, Peter Laurie. There actually are some big stars. Yes, and uh, a cameo by a very big star, uh, which was not announced and audiences were told to keep it a secret. You know, don't tell. It turns out that the heiress that uh, Marcus Brody has been protecting throughout the whole movie is actually a decoy. She's not the real... Oh. She's not the real moneyed heiress that everyone's after. And so at the end of the movie, Mike Todd drags out his younger stepmother, Elizabeth Taylor, oh. at the time, the biggest movie star in the world, for a very short appearance. That's nice. So audiences could finally find out what double eyelashes smelled like. So the, this event, this uh, cinematic event, happened at one theater 
for the run of one film. Yeah, because back then, big movies like this would debut in roadshow form. Like, Sin Mystery didn't even have credits. You'd be given a program with all the credits in it. A roadshow was a very, you know, it would come to your town and everyone would go. It would be an event. There was an intermission and an entract. And so Smell-O-Vision could follow uh, the film and and be broadcast at multiple theaters? In theory, but you'd have to refit the theater. Yeah. Because it, the idea with Smell-O-Vision is the smell comes to your seat. That's that's what solves some of the, the technical problems. Is it's not just released by one guy in a, in a air conditioning duct or in a, one corner of the theater. Right. It comes out everywhere. And as it turned out, that did not work. The smell is, is a key point to the mystery, by the way. Uh, uh, Marcus Brody identifies the killer by smelling pipe tobacco at the same time the audience does. So, you know, we have the clue, the crucial clue, but it did not work. Um, it was too, the smells were too faint in some parts of the theater, which meant people on the screen could see the bread coming out of the oven. Everyone would be like, <laughs> so you'd hear loud sniffing from the balcony or wherever the smell was not arriving. Um, it turns out there's also a speed of smell problem. The speed of smell. The speed of smell is slower than the speed of light or even, or even the speed of sound, as right. you imagine, because it's got to pass through all these ducts. So it turned out to be very hard to synchronize so that everybody was smelling the peppermint at once. Sure, you'd have to release it at a, at a sort of time delay so that the people at the back, it was released quite a bit earlier. That would be a complicated process. Yeah, and they didn't, they didn't nail it. People and at the back were smelling the peppermint like... 40 seconds later and we're realizing, oh, that was the peppermint in the last scene in the candy store. And you know, you kind of, uh, that there's that phrase lead with your nose. What does that phrase mean? Well, it, you, you would, you would think that it meant that just the nose is the first part of your face to enter a room or a situation. But it also, you, when you're, when you anticipate smelling a thing, you kind of do lean in, kind of lift your nose up and go like you're, you, uh, you kind of search with your nose for a thing that you expect is coming. Can you imagine watching an audience at that movie? Just like, yeah, they don't, they're not even looking at the screen. They're like leaning they got their, their nose in up. the air. No, thanks. Yeah. And the, the, I guess in, uh, there are some reports that people actually got nauseous, that the smell was too strong and actually audiences were sickened, not delighted by the scent of mystery. So that would be me. I, I, I have a very sensitive nose. Are you like one of these super smellers? Are you good at distinguishing yeah, I guess. I mean, over the years, people have suggested that I was a super smeller, super taster. Right. But I don't feel like I have it to the degree that would put me in the super category. But I am a smeller taster, right? Like, a, I don't know if there's a if there's a ranking system where you can just be good at it. B plus smeller and taster. There's probably a percentile. You're but I, top, but I, top 10 percentile in smelling and tasting. But I can get very... I can get very distracted by smell and also very allergic or feel it feels like an allergic reaction when it's really just a revulsion or a, and not just to smell of like dog droppings, as you say, <laughs> as I always say, my hilarious <laughs> dog, catchphrase, dog droppings, but, um, but also just like even perfumes or, or what would, what would seem to be innocuous smells will really take me out of a situation and like, no, can't do it. Like an, an artificial scent of popcorn or something like that might ruin an experience for me. Well, there are people who actually report, um, you know, traumatic responses to smell. I mean, there's the one thing of people who, you know, have allergies to it. And so certain public spaces are supposed to be scent free. Now this is kind of a trend. Yeah, right? sure. That there's going to be a scent free gathering for whatever. Thank you, people. Thank you, very sensitive people. Yeah, scent free for making the world safe for Boy in the Bubble, John Roderick, <laughs> who can't stand Chanel Number no. Five. But there's also people that have psychological reactions. You know, uh, Vietnam veterans who, when they smell d diesel fuel, they're they, they're they're just back there, transported back to Da Nang. Sure, and uh, and they say that. Uh, have you experienced that? The idea that it's often said that smell is the sense most closely linked to memory. Sure. And I think that's true. The olfactory bulb of the brain is very close to um, the hippocampus, mm -hmm. where, which is central to memory. And I think the amygdala, which is central to emotional, emotional response, which is why we have these very strong visceral responses to smells. Yeah, there are so many smells that are characteristic of where we grew up, kind of mossy, autumnal smells. There's, right. there's a lot of uh, leaf litter and stuff kind of constantly sort of rained upon and... And uh, it all creates Mildew. a very, a very sort of mossy smell out here that if, if it catches me unawares, particularly if I'm somewhere outside of the Northwest, but I get into a little mossy holla and, uh, and smell 
some of those distinctive smells. It puts me right back to Halloween when I was nine years old. There's a very particular um, sort of smell of lukewarm cafeteria food that will immediately put me back in my first grade Seattle elementary school. So you love going to Ikea for that very reason? <laughs> That's why I go there. I feel like a, like a seven-year-old again. Well, on that note, let's take a, a little break and uh, we'll be right back. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So I guess that would be some virtue of, uh, of seeing art with an olfactory component is that it can produce this very strong emotional or even nostalgic response. Yeah, but I guess it would be so, I mean, that's so individual. Right. It would be very hard to uh, to have it evoke that same feeling in everyone. Like, you know what I love is the smell of, uh, I love the smell of sort of stale tobacco smoke because it reminds me of the years I spent as a kid growing up in Asia where everybody smelled like cigarettes. Right. So I'm actually nostalgic about the worst smell in the world, cigarette smoke. And I can't imagine that you know, anybody else on the street would want to see a movie edited with my personal smell tastes. Well, when I was growing up, the smell, when you went to get uh, gas put in your car, first of all, there was an attendant who gassed up your car, right? There was no self-service gas when I was a little kid. And there were no filters that kept that gas smell from permeating everything. Oh man, gas stations were so smelly. They were really smelly. In the 70s. And as a kid, I mean, we all love, and this was leaded gas too. We all loved the smell of gas. You would sit there and just like try and fill your nose with leaded gas smell. That does explain a lot about your, your subsequent life. Well, Jim. not just me, but the entire Generation <laughs> X. That's like, that, that's, uh, that's how we got that whole loser reputation. Well, isn't that true that like uh, some people have linked the rising crime rates and subsequent drop to getting, picking lead out of gas and paint? I wouldn't be at all surprised, right? I mean, le- I think like, you can see in different countries the crime rate drops n years after lead is better regulated. It just made people bad and dumb. But those are the smells that I mean. I sometimes, when I'm gassing up my car, will kind of catch a little whiff. But unleaded gas just doesn't smell the same. <laughs> you think you can smell the lead? <laughs> you got the lead is the key ingredient. Well, there's also new car smells, right? Uh, you know, and that's a smell that's I think terrible, and we. Because we've been told it's a sign of affluence, we're all like, ah, yes, love that terrible chemical smell of plastics off-gassing. Oh, I hate it. And it turns out it's bromine and lead and chlorine, and it's all these things that are terrible for you, but that's the smell of money, baby. Well, I wonder, I, there, isn't, <clears throat> there is like your, your suggestion that Vietnam vets smell diesel and, and uh, it takes them back. There are those situations where smell was a major component of the thing being represented, right? Like uh, the sweet smell of success or whatever, the the film that we're discussing. Scent of mystery. Scent of mystery. AKA holiday in Spain. <laughs> um, AKA Marcus Brody uh, bumbling through Europe. But you know, they're just putting smells in like baked bread that re- are just sort of, they're trying to evoke a, an emotional response, but they're not, it's not really anything sp- specific to Spain. Whereas if you were watching a film about Vietnam, like let's say you were watching Platoon and Platoon had all the smells associated with actually being in Vietnam. Yeah, and not just generic flower smells, but whatever the jungle really smells like. Sure, and and helicopter fuel and, yeah. and spent gunpowder. Like that might actually draw you into a film and, and make it feel like it's more experiential, particularly those ones that, that immerse you in the experience of war or um, being in an environment that, that you're not accustomed to. Whereas a film where you're just around somebody's house and it's like, smell these delicious cookies and the 
3D cookie comes at you. Uh, I think I'd be both curious and also very wary about going to see Full Metal Jacket and Smell-O-Vision. Sure. Like, I, I think the number of genres where you want to see what things smell like is pretty low. Like, almost any... Almost any action movie or cowboy movie, <laughs> <laughs> right? No. Anything said in the past at all of any genre, like even some beautiful uh, costume piece, some Jane Austen thing. You're like, what a wonderful life these guys have at their country home. And then you smell what it smelled like then. And yeah, you're like, right. oh, pass. No one has showered in a year and they're going to the bathroom behind curtains. I do not want to smell Sylvester Stallone in any film. Well, do you know the most recent big named director? Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> so it's like marinara sauce and bio and, and uh, bodybuilding oil. The most recent director, name director to try out, to try to revive Smell-O-Vision uh, was John Waters. Oh, no. The last person you want to see doing it. That's awful. For all these reasons discussed. His movie Polyester uh, in some theaters came with a scratch and sniff card. Right. And they weren't marked, so it was a mystery. But oh. you'd be instructed, scratch number two, and it would be farts. Oh, no. Scratch number five, it's, uh, you know, a skunk or it's, um, you know, gym shoes or something. The most recent attempt at smell-o-vision is called Oroma. And it's uh, essentially olfactory technology for pornography. Oh, no. I don't want. I don't want that. You don't want that? No. It's a VR gear you put on your head. It comes with a little bulb you put over your mask, like a World War I gas mask. Uh-huh. And uh, there are 30 different canisters and a heating element and synced up with different elements of the entertainment. You can get different smells. Oh, no. It's not what you think. <laughs> it's mostly ambient stuff. Like, right. um, you know, if you have, you know... If there's a, your fetish is a bakery, you know, you can smell that. I see. Or, you know, for flowers or it's, you know, it's just, you know, aphrodisiac kind of smells. I mean, I think that that's probably really true with people that certain smells give them uh, a sexual response. I can because only imagine. Because they've been conditioned uh, to, to when they smell diesel fuel, think of, I don't know, that one great experience they had at a truck stop. But I can't imagine that that would be universal. Like if I smelled lavender in a face mask while watching porn, I might. What do you mean if? I might think. What do you uh, mean if? Isn't that, isn't that your Tuesday night? Yeah, but what if that was the what if that was the uh, yeah? What if your grandma that, wore yeah, lavender? Exactly. Exactly. And you're just like, no, no, get this off. I think it would have to be individualized. It yeah. would have to be. It wouldn't be Mike Todd choosing when you smell what. It would have to be I choose right. what I smell <laughs> during my private time. I choose the leather and cedar. Uh, <laughs> pack for my for my porn film so there are so scratch and sniff and also like scented pens right were two things that that were given scents that kind of related to like scented pens were given scents that related to the color and scratch and sniff were and you had kids huffing them you know yeah sure oh blue is raspberry (laughs) yeah right you'd sit in like the root beer brown sniff that all day i'm sure that's terrible for you also but also like scratch and sniff was a thing that would, would appeared in books, right? You'd be reading a book and then lift up a flap, scratch this little pad and, sure. and get the scent of lemon or something. I think of it as an eighties fad. So there were, there were other attempts to, to put smell of vision in other media. It's got a shelf life problem, right? I mean, you can listen to a record for centuries. You can look at a painting for millennia, but if you scratch a scratch and sniff sticker 20 times, like most of the little, Smell capsules are probably broken and it doesn't smell anymore. I think. Well, I mean, this is something that maybe futurelings will, I wish that they could report back to us in time because maybe they will discover piles of scratch and sniff books and their super sensitive noses will still be able to know <laughs> what it was like to be a child in the 21st century. And that concludes smell vision Entry number... 1177.AM0521 Certificate number 18585 In the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, and I hope for your own sake it does not, our tweets are archived at at Omnibus Project. Our handles on Twitter were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. I also, during this period, maintained an Instagram account because I like the visual aspect 
of socializing. And my Instagram account is under the same name, at John Roderick. Our address for email, which uh, in our time was a popular form of electronic conversation or communication, was theomnibuspodcast at gmail.com. And we had no olfactory media of any kind, so we were unreachable by By, smell. By smell. From our vantage point, future listeners, we are your distant past, and, and we have no idea how long our civilization will survive. You know, but we do not. We hope and pray that there will be no catastrophe. But if the worst does come, this recording, like all our recordings, may be your final word from us. But we hope, we hope that Providence will allow us to be back with you again soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.